0: Passion Week, if you would open to Mark 11, I like that phrase, Passion Week. There's a whole lot on display in the scriptures about the passion of Jesus Christ. I want to read a portion from Mark 11. You You're reading the first 19 verses of what their children sang about so wonderfully, children way to go, about Hosanna and the circumstances that surrounded the triumphal entry. Mark 11, now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, Why are you doing? What are you doing in untying the colt? They told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had been cut off the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were sold and those who bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests, the scribes heard it, we seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It causes us, not only this morning, but every time we open it, to stop and look through a lens of truth at our life at our world, at you. This morning, God, what I'm praying is we would see you as you really are. We would see you, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, what, might, what we see, might we love you more because of what we see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. From an overview of the Gospels, we know Jesus is nearing his end of the journey as he goes to the cross. For some months now, he's purposely zigzagged through Samaria and uh, ultimately to Judea. And Mark 11, we know again as the Passion Week. I remember growing up, and um, and these palm leaves were a part of um, Palm Sunday and a big kind of festive environment. When I would go to church, I didn't know much about Jesus at all. Never really heard much about him, which is pretty sad in church, but I didn't. Um, but the palm leaves were interesting to me because it seemed on that Sunday, it was really, really festive. And and so I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good thing. But but then a couple of days later, it was like really somber. And as a young child, not really knowing much about Christ or that was a weird sway of emotion. It was just a couple days, it seemed like, in Good Friday, I'd be back in church, and I'm like, hey, what happened to Sunday? We're all excited here a couple days ago. Now what's going on? And, uh, but really, that tone is the tone we find in the Gospels, a sway of emotion takes place. And I want us to follow that, because there's four events that I've read about here in Mark 11. And they're all tied and locked in around the triumphal entry. We sometimes don't associate them, um, which is unfortunate, but we're not going to make that mistake this morning. And so all four Gospels mention the account of triumphal entry. And as we read through this and study this a little bit more, I'm going to look at Luke 19 as well as a parallel passage. So if you want to put your finger in there, you will be there in a minute. But I want to examine these four motion-packed moments. The first one, the triumphal entry, which we've just read about. The Gospels, it's interesting, provide several phrases. It's, It's almost like the cadence of a drum that nears Jesus to Jerusalem. Listen to these phrases from Scripture. As he was approaching Jericho. And then he entered and was passing through Jericho. He was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. He approached Jerusalem at Bethphage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, and when he approached and saw the city, he entered the temple. You kind of it's like the, the cadence of the drum. He just closer and closer and closer till he's in Jerusalem, and then actually in the temple. And so, as we come near this journey, understand that the blood of a million sacrifices have called has caused called Jesus to this city. All those Old Testament sacrifices you read, all of them call him to this moment as the one time sacrifice for sin. Indeed, it's called Passion Week for a reason. Now we read in chapter 11 which we just read, verses 1-3 through 3, we have a couple disciples sent to Bethphage, southern side of Mount of Olives and they find everything just as Jesus said. Now don't fly over this because I, I like to try to put myself in here. and Jesus says, go to the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt, which no one's ever sat untie it and just take it. Now, think about that for a second. What if someone said to you, I want you to go over to Dassel. You're going to find a pickup truck parked in front of this. The keys are in it. Just grab it. Really? I mean, we would be a little nervous, Right? Okay, my Easter, I'm going to be in jail for Easter. What, what, what are you talking about here? But, but these guys do it. And it's interesting. The Lord needs it. I mean, that's what he tells them. If anyone asks, just say the Lord needs it. Well, try that if you take the pickup truck. Police pulls you over. The Lord needed it. I'm sure they'll let you go. It's doubtful. But that's all it took. The Lord needed it. And here it is, this colt that Jesus borrows. I thought about that before it was a boat. Before that, a boy's lunch, he borrowed a platform for preaching and food for a miracle. Truly the son of man had no place to even lay his head. He was borrowing things. Such irony. Think about it: the one through whom all things came into being himself has nothing. A king without so much as a cult to his name. Without even a coin with which to rent one. And it's such a king who rides into Jerusalem. Seated not on a proud Arabian horse, but on a borrowed little donkey. We have a couple of horses at home. We have Stryker and Daisy. Emily uses those for barrel racing. And uh, if you were to walk into our house and see those two, you'd say, I would take those two. The, the one you wouldn't take is Sir Somebody, Sir Mixelot or something. I don't know. We got a little donkey. No, you wouldn't pick, you wouldn't pick him. He wouldn't be the one you chose, but it's the one Jesus chose. It's the one he wanted. And so his feet, I can imagine his feet are probably almost dragging on the ground. It's an unkingly sight, almost comical. But this is how he comes, meek and lowly, without pomp, without ceremony, without even the slightest concern of appearance. That's how he comes. Some respond in celebration. Some are hailing him. And notice Jesus doesn't resist. Why? Why? Well, one, he's fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. He knows he's fulfilling prophecy. He's not going to resist that. His whole life, as a matter of fact, you see him fulfill prophecy. Secondly, I think he removes all doubt from the religious ruler's minds as to his claims. He's going to accept this praise because he indeed is the God who saves. Now, Matthew 21 gives us a little more insight and says... That when he, Jesus came, the whole city was stirred. Matter of fact, that word "stirred" Matthew uses this idea of a commotion. And when he came, I mean, that city was in a commotion. I mean, things were popping. People were questioning. Some were praising. Some were scratching their head. But when Jesus comes, it seems like he forced the hand of the religious leaders, because after this public act, they'd have to cast a public vote. No more meetings in secret. Behind closed doors, no more plotting in private, they'd have to come out in the open. They'd have to confess him or curse him. They'd have to crown him or kill him. And when he came, he kind of, in a sense, forced their hand. And so you look, flip back over to Luke 19, verse 39, a little more insight. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher... Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, what is expressive for some is offensive to others. The religious crowd, the religious establishment are angry. And they're saying to Jesus, listen, this crowd's making a mistake that you need to correct. You shouldn't be hailed. You shouldn't be honored. You better correct them and tell them to knock it off. I think verse 40 is almost an indictment to them, as the Pharisees showed their hearts were harder than stones. Verse 40 can be a very convicting verse. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know, when you come before God in your private devotions, or come to God in corporate worship, and sit and don't engage, that should be an indictment, because even stones do that. And it is quiet here because you ever come and you're like, oh, man, I don't feel like engaging. I mean, you know, my mind's going with the pot roast at home. Your mind's all over the place. And I, let verse 40 hurt a little, okay? Let it hurt. Um, because we are to praise and worship him and nothing should stop it. And uh, that was an indictment to the Pharisees there. And so we have this triumphal entry. But what we tend to forget is what happens in connection with this. We find it in Luke 19.41, let me continue reading this text to 44. <clears throat> and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from their eyes, from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Yet, how little peace this city has seen. I mean, over the centuries, God sent prophets, now he sends his son. And and Luke uses a very strong word. In our English, we see the word wept, because it's the best we could do in English. But the Greek word is a little stronger. It has the idea of convulsive sobbing. That takes a little different picture, doesn't it? He's deeply grieved at what he sees. This isn't just one tear. Jesus sees lost hard hearts as he looks at Jerusalem. For him, it's a panorama of pain, of grief. Hands lifted in praise will soon be lifted in punishment. And Jesus knows cloaks of honor will become cloaks of dishonor. And although we see the presence of tears, we know nothing of their depth. We just read, He wept. But there's a whole lot more than that. I agree with Ken Geyer. He says, In Jesus' tears, they not only sanctify the moment, but they transcend the moment. In each of his tears is distilled something of eternity, of God's love, of his compassion. It's true. You see, through the mist of tears, he peers into Jerusalem's future and he sees bloodshed, tortured cries. Historian Josephus tells us Titus besieged Jerusalem in 87 when it was full of Passover visitors. They cut off the people from leaving. They cut off all the supplies from coming in. People starved, Many starved. Soldiers stormed the village in this, or the city and they tore down the temple. Jesus looks and sees this. And he's grieved deeply. Tears. Tears of regret over what could and should have been. Tears over the loss of so much life and so much peace. And I'm sure tears over the pain of rejection. That though, although he came to provide salvation, there'd be those who'd reject him and not turn to him. I guess all that to say his heart was broken. We don't think of Palm Sunday that way. We, we tend to just think of the palm leaves. But this is in connection with that day or what the circumstances surrounded it. Verse 44, I can't help but see it drip with longing. I mean, try to hear the tone of what he's saying, especially the end of it, because you did not know the time of your visitation. I mean, the last. I just hear agony. I just hear grief. But it made me ask a question personally as i look at what grieved jesus so deeply the loss the hurt the death the separation from god the lack of faith when i when i think of that i got to ask me what grieves my heart is is it these things dr phil had a guest on sometime i was flipping through the channels and uh, whenever there's a parent child thing it's sometimes interesting and the child came on the show and she was weeping. I'm not kidding. Crying and crying. And I'm like, oh wow, this girl's upset. She's upset. Mom and dad took away her phone. She's on Dr. Phil saying how unfair this is. Now it's easy to laugh at her and think, what a fool. But, the, but then I think about sometimes what really grabs my heart. And Is what is grievous my heart, would it it really mirror the heart of my Savior? And what grieves your heart? What solicits your tears? When's the last time you actually cried over somebody? I couldn't help but thinking this next week, there's going to be multitudes and multitudes of people throughout the world, certainly throughout our area, who are going to come to church. And they're going to come to church, maybe really nicely dressed up, But if they leave that door and were to die, they'd spend an eternity in hell. And our Savior looked down the corridors of time and wept. Because that's what was on his heart. That's what grieved him. Might it grieve mine more so and might it grieve all of ours. A.W. Tozer said, the Bible was written in tears. And to tears it yields its greatest treasure. So we see his, his triumphal entry. We see him weeping over Jerusalem. But then we see a little situation here that we don't often think about. Back to Mark. In connection, again. It starts in verse 12 of chapter 11, which I read, following day, when they came from Bethany, he's hungry. Seeing a distance this fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. He uses now a picture of a tree. And this cursing of the fig tree actually sandwiches the temple event. Because if you look at verse 20, after leaving the temple, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to the roots. Peter, remember what he said, he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse is withered. Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. He begins to talk about the significance of prayer. But What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that there, there's a foundation called our heart. And when there's no fruit from it, it's withering. Now although the leaves might look really shiny, and might look really good, sometimes the root's not so good. And he provides this visual parable of what's happening to Israel. For oftentimes, the Old Testament, we find the fig tree is a symbol for Israel. Israel is a barren fig tree. And the leaves only covered the nakedness. The magnificence of their temple and numerous ceremonies hid the fact that these people had not brought forth fruit of repentance and righteousness. And really, in its most simple terms, the parable tells us just because we look good, our leaves look large and shiny, does not mean we're pleasing God. And so as we see this little encounter take place, we see him then go into the temple. Verses 15 through 19. As a fig tree is barren, Jesus goes into the temple and finds the same thing. You see, his passion won't allow him to look away. There's another gospel that said, kind of, we're not exactly sure when it was, it just tells Jesus went to the temple, looked around and left. My thought is was actually before this, this is when he comes now after he looked, He comes back. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But we do know that when he comes, he's very grieved by what he sees. Now, some background's helpful here. There was a place set aside in a temple so people of all races could enter into the blessings of the covenant. That place was the outer courtyard. And what did God desire would take place in that outer courtyard? I mean, what was Jesus' desire would take place in that outer courtyard? Well, Matthew 21 gives us the answer. Verse 14 to 16. Listen, here's what God desired to take place in the outer courtyard. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. That's what he desired for the temple. It would be a place of praise, of worship. And we sometimes forget, but it would also be a place of witness. That outer courtyard was for Gentiles to come in is for them to be exposed to the teaching of the law of God and to the promises of Messiah. It was there they were to come to worship. And they were invited into this. And Jesus comes into the temple, and he doesn't find worship taking place. He finds it dead. He doesn't find witness taking place. It's empty. It's not even present. Instead, he finds a flea market, a religious circus, merchandising and money-changing perversion of true worship and sin, against lost Gentiles. And the priests, instead of praying for the people, prayed on the people. Jesus begins to put his Father's house in order. Reminds the people where the Father's heart is. It's on worship. It's on witness. And that's what it is on Easter too, by the way. It's on worship and it's on witness. That's the Father's heart. No wonder he's grieved. No wonder we see a, a I guess a glimpse of his holiness. Flashes of that righteous anger come out. And how different is this emotion, right? And we see the emotion when he, when he accepts the praise as he enters on the donkey. We see this, this grief, this convulsing of his as he overlooks Jerusalem. We see as he walks by the withered fig tree we see the grief and hear it in his voice. And here we see his anger. Grief, compassion, sorrow, anger. It's a lot, so much emotion, a gamut of emotion. And in Mark 11, 2021, 20, Jesus' prophecies foretold, for Mark's careful to tell us that the tree that he had talked about was withered to the roots. It speaks to the totality of the deadened condition. Of those who rejected Jesus. That which f- would have brought peace. That which would have brought a-, a hope and joy. Christ was rejected. Hosanna was the cry. The triumphal entry. Hosanna, Lord save us. Interesting that word Hosanna in the Old Testament it was more of a plea. In the New Testament for those who accepted Christ it became more of a declaration. Has that happened in your life? I mean, have you come to the point where you cried out, Lord, save me? And have you come to the point now where you say, Lord, I praise you that you saved me? Or are you still on this side? have never got to that point where you exercise faith in Christ. If you haven't, you've missed the whole point of this and the whole point of Easter. I pray that you'd respond to Christ, that you would cry out, Lord, save me, because it implies two things. One, that you need saving, and two, that you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you. Two huge truths that are necessary for salvation. There is no other Savior. No one's qualified. Only Jesus Christ is. Have you cried out to him? And if you have, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, I hope you're on this side, praising him and declaring, he has saved me. And that's your declaration. It's your mantra. That'd be great. And so our applications really begin there. Two concluding exhortations. There's much more, but there's a couple I grabbed out of here I think were, are really helpful to us. Seeing the flow of Christ's emotion and the determination he displayed leads us to these two. One, let the emotion of Christ help you see your heart. As you look at Christ's emotion, what grieved him, what, what he rejoiced in, let it be a window into your heart. You see, being conformed to the image of Christ is letting God's spirit work in us. And part of the work of the Spirit is searching our hearts. But our part is cooperating and allowing that examination to take place and move us to prayer. To say, God, I want to feel somewhat of what you're feeling. I want to I see people, I want to see life the way you see it. I want to hurt to a little degree like you hurt. I want my heart to become more like yours. That, that's, that's a good prayer. And I pray that you would allow Christ's emotion help you see your heart. Let his emotion be the window into your heart and let his emotion be the window into how you see other people. Number two, let the determination of Christ fuel your courage to follow him. When you're tempted to sit idle, to succumb to pressure, follow the model of Christ. Although grieved deeply, although totally rejected, He continued to love. He continued to serve, ultimately sacrificing his life. Let the determination of Christ fuel you in your courage to follow him. Don't shrug off the calling of God in your life. Keep moving forward. Look at Christ. Cast your eyes, fix your eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him when you're weary, Hebrews says. Consider Him so you won't lose heart. Let His determination fuel your courage. The emotions and determination of Christ provide us a picture of Christ-like living in our journey through this life. So let the emotion of Christ help you see your heart. Let the determination of Christ fuel your courage to follow Him. Some time ago I was minding my own business in 2 Thessalonians. Just reading it like I do in my devotions every day, and, and, uh, and there was a little nugget that jumped out, and, it, and it, God brought it to mind this week. And it's just one verse, but if, if there's a desire I have for you this morning, I'm going to feel Paul's, because it's so good, and it so lines up with what we're talking about. And, and here it is. Th- this is my desire for you. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Father, it is my prayer for my brothers and sisters. Like a river in your hands, would you direct our hearts to you, to your love. And Lord, as we struggle, as life gets hard, Would you root us in the steadfastness of your Son who models for us perfectly obedience, courage, love, grace, and perseverance. So Lord, direct my brothers and sisters' hearts into your love and into the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.